Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are oh, you? God, it's so yellow. We're not we're not recording, are we? Oh we are. That's okay. As in recording a voice, but you're not showing the video, right? Well not maybe. Yet. We have plans to in the future, maybe. Depends how good it is. Mm. Oh God, pressure! <laughs> Not pressure. Okay. I have. Um. I we have um sold our place. We were at Breakfast Point, right. and we bought an apartment off the plan in um in Des Moines. Uh-huh. So when we sold in March of this year, yes, March of this year, extended settlement. We were supposed to be in in November, so that was going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the Monday after we sold on the Saturday. We found out that it was not November, it was March. And now, because of COVID, it's between April and June of next year. So oh. we're, at, we're at Mum's, which is fine oh. because I'm back home again, back in, you know, where, where I started a long time ago. Yeah. But some things are not, um, you know, when you've got your own place and it's just all perfect, it's not all perfect on <sighs> the land of working. But anyway, enough about it. How is your dad, David? Um, yeah, he's okay. So he's going through chemotherapy at the moment. Um, so he has some pre-existing heart conditions and there's just been a couple of episodes where there's been a few weird things happening. So it's been, it's been a trying period to be honest with you. Frightening, isn't it? It's last, so hard. Yeah. It's sort of, you know. I, you, I wouldn't have been able to do it last night. I was so devastated for you. Oh, thank you. Very sweet. It's so, it's uh, so hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard on, it's hard on everyone and it's, I guess from my perspective, I, I like to try and think I can fix everything. So when you've got something that's completely out of your control, um, it's really can it's kind of confronting, you know, for the first time, like my my, you know, when someone in your like your inner family, like your your immediate family gets ill, nothing mm. can really prepare you for that. So no. Yeah. No. As I said to you last night, I lost my dad four and a half years ago. And uh, I'm like you, you know, you always, you can always fix everything, right? Everything, I always say problem, solution, everything can all be fixed. And then you come to that stage of your life and that's just not how it works, you know. But it's, um, I don't know, it'll just give you strength. Um, every one of these challenges will give you strength and you'll just get through it. And um, somehow you do, you get through. I don't know how you do, but you just do. Yeah, you're always um, capable of doing more than what you think you can, but you don't realize that you can until you have to. <laughs> so, yeah, I look. My family had um, anyone sort of spoken to them before me losing my dad. I was really, really close with my dad. Absolutely adored him, still do. And um, they were like, "Oh God, this is you know when Nonno goes, this is going to be this is going to be bad, but Mum is going to be a disaster." This like. I don't know what we're going to do, how we're going to work this. And I was with him when he took his last breath and um, I just felt that I didn't realise when somebody passes the last breath is actually out, not Mm. in, because the whole time is that that whole laboured breathing. But Mm. the last breath, in my dad's case, I don't know if that's how it is, was out. Mm. And it was like 
And I was talking him through it and letting him know that it was okay to go because mum wasn't there at the time. And um, and we had he took the last breath. It was sort of like I went, I'm going to be okay. I've got this. Like, you know, and that's exactly what's happened. I still get upset and it's still yeah. terrible in not being around and all that sort of stuff. But it was sort of like, I don't know, he just sort of gave me that. Because the difference between life and death is just a breath. That's mm. it. Well, yeah, Jake, Jake and I were, were talking last night and, you know, his family's obviously in the UK and he's thousands and thousands of miles away and That's he was so just hard. talking about, yeah, weren't you, Jake? Yeah, it was, well, it was a different challenge. I hope I never get that phone call to say, you know, something's happened because like you just said, what am I going to do? Not only am I not local, but I'm not even allowed to fly at the moment. So I know, it's so difficult, it's, isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, my dad hasn't even met my son. So um, it's all just, yeah, it's a bit crap, but um, we'll get And that's there. what made it so hard last night for you too, David, I was thinking is that it just with this whole COVID thing, you just like, you know, Jake, you were amazing. Like I saw it straight away. Like I'm, I'm getting in my car, I'm coming over, you know, and all this stuff is just like so difficult at the moment, just that, that, that support. Like I'm in a hard lockdown area where I am. So I was thinking I wouldn't even be able to do that. I wouldn't even be able to, like a girlfriend of mine lost her dad this morning and um, we're really, really close, but, I don't know when I'll see her because right now I'm in a hard lockdown and can't leave the the, the air. It's hard. Everything's yeah. everything's really challenging. But yeah, it's it's definitely difficult times. But hopefully, what do they say? It's always darkest before dawn. So maybe things are. Yeah, I always say the better, uh, right? it's, it's the breakdown before the breakthrough. <laughs> 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 We're almost there. <laughs> so um, let's change gears and talk about the the fun stuff and the positive stuff. I mean, we could sit here and. Uh, Love to have this conversation with you, but I'm sure our listeners are like, oh, God, I'm feeling a bit depressed now. <laughs> <laughs> now, Jake was just asking me off air, how do we pronounce your name? And I understand it to be Cocciolone. Oh, wow. Correct? Excellent. Yes. The double C is a chess. Yes. Oh, right. Cocciolone. Yeah. Right. And, and I've got a question for you, Maria. How did you add that cool little thing to your LinkedIn? So you, you actually pronounce your name for people on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, there must have been a little thing that asked me, so I just did it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Kachalani uh, is my um, my married name, and even though it's been for like thirty five years, um, it's not a name that I would ever I'd taken on willingly. I come from Italian parents, and they they were just like, "Oh my god, you just have to have your husband's name." It's like, yeah, but it's never going to be my name, you know. So I went through such a hard time with the pronunciation of Kachalani. I sit in like. RTAs and um, like you know different places where they call your name. I have no idea who they were calling, and they were calling me. But now I noticed on Qantas. I don't know what Qantas did about three or four years back. They, um, I'd get on the plane. The first thing they go, um, "Good afternoon, Mr. Smith. Good afternoon, Mr. Sloan. Good afternoon, Mr. Segal. Good afternoon, Maria." Never <laughs> would they use my. And then all of a sudden, I got on board, and they go. Good afternoon, Mrs. Cocciolani. I'm like, wow, they've had lessons here. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. Good. yeah, double C's a chirp. Yeah. We had a bit of a game before we went on air. We were discussing what type of pasta it might sound like. <laughs> we, we decided it was a seashell-shaped pasta. Yeah. Yes, Cocciolani. the, co- the conchiglie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you say, is it? Yeah, yeah. well done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, when you were saying that, I'm going, oh, no, it has to be conchiglie, but they would, yeah, it's the shell. Yeah. These are the uh, these are the deep and meaningful, insightful discussions that Jake and I have when the, ca- <laughs> when the camera's not rolling. Wonder now what, you guys, when you sit down, that you person's sit down. last name sounds like. <laughs> if you ever sit down to a plate of cookies, you're going to go, "Oh, yeah. it's Marie Cacciolini." <laughs> well, well, I want to know how you guys know each other because you've met, and, and I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Maria yet through Bobak. 
Right. A long time, a long time yeah. ago, David, you and I met, didn't we? Yeah, I came to your offices in Five Dog. Was it Five Dog? Oh wow! I mean, yes. you, you know, I think it was Five Dog. Yeah, yes. that's where that's where I started. Yeah, yeah, upstairs. Wow, you remember? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think you were doing this the skin needling device with Bobak was around that time. Oh my God! Yes, the skin inject. Yes. There you go. Did you? Were you guys? Were you guys the first ones to really start doing that big in Australia? Wow. Yeah, we were. We were. So I still do the skin inject, and um, um, KKR still do the skin inject, and so we just sort of we just order separately now. But otherwise, Bob and I did. Bob and I did that together. Yeah. God, that was a long time ago. It feels like forever ago. And then we took um, Andrew Christie on tour, and. Oh. Um, yeah, we went around Australia, Andrew Christie oh. and myself, you know, launching it. Yeah, he's been around the industry for a long, long time now as well. Mm. We're all becoming dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, I do say that. Like, I've been in the industry for, <laughs> God, Jake, yeah, I hope you haven't met me out. I've been in the industry for like over 35 years. Yeah, wow. I, was, I did a bit of research and I was like, wow, she really has seen it all probably. Yeah. So that's really, I guess, the background to our discussion today. But yeah. Why do you want to, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sort of give us the story and, and tell me as well, because I'd, I'd love to sort of find out where it all started. Okay, I can do that. All right. So my name is Maria Enacocciolone and I have been in the professional beauty industry for God, over 35 years. I started as an esthetician. Um, didn't really know that I ever wanted to be in the beauty industry or to, I didn't even know what an esthetician was. I remember that. I come from Italian parents and um, I think I might have given them some false hopes that I might be a, uh, a lawyer or a doctor. <laughs> I did that for my work experience in, I think it was year 11 or 12 or something like that, and um, found it so boring so boring. And um, I went to a careers market. As I came up the stairs of the careers market, this is a massive stand for uh, a beauty th- beauty therapy. And I was like, what's, what is beauty therapy? The beauty therapy? I did have breakout skin. I did suffer from um, acne as a, a teenager. And um, I just was very, very lucky that I met the uh, principal of the school. And as she opened up the curriculum and showed me what beauty therapy was all about, I was, I, it was love at first sight. I instantly fell in love with this industry. So I came home and I told my parents that I was going to be a, uh, a beauty therapist. My parents didn't know, um, well, I didn't know in Italian that beauty therapist is esthetista and we didn't call ourselves estheticians back in that day. So the connection wasn't made between this esthetician and esthetista. So my dad understood that I was going to be a, um, a masseurist in King's Cross. <laughs> And did not speak to me for three months. Oh, I was going to say, is that where you met Bobak? But maybe we'll have to edit that. Out. <laughs> it was a long way afterwards. And just yeah. if you're listening from abroad, Kings Cross. Uh, I mean, certainly I haven't been in Australia that long, but I heard it was a pretty interesting place a few years ago. Back yeah. in the day, back in the day, well, exactly. Well, 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 they, well, a, they did a series on it, Underbelly. Really, yeah, well, one of the ser- one of the episode, one of the. One of this, one of the seasons, focused on the King's King's Cross. Yes. Sort of. When was it? Back in the probably the eighties and the nineties. Around. Well, it, was, about, it was probably about that time because yeah. I did, I graduated in eighty five. So yeah. Um, if you see that that um, see that um, uh, uh, cut of that, you'll see that yeah, no no parent would have been happy about their daughter yeah. uh, working in the cross. So yeah, so I, they were prepared to help me to pay for my fees like. 
35 years ago, it was something like eight grand to become uh, a therapist. But like I said, it was absolutely love at first sight. And I went straight into, even as a, um, a student, it's still like beauty school. I had three jobs. I ended up working for my principal and, um, and then, yeah, I had a couple of jobs when I graduated and it was all hands-on. I set up my beauty salon at home and I always had that, like, you know, you, you know when you just never get enough? I could, now I think back and go, oh, my God, that's, like, so intense. It was so addictive. But it was, like, that hands-on and what you could do to change a person's skin and ultimately to change a person, the way that they felt about themselves and their confidence. So for me, it was, like, hands-on beauty, 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 beauty. And then I... Um, I had an opportunity to um, to do a travelling role. And back in the days, it wasn't clinics like there are today. They were perfumeries. I don't know if you remember these. The, you know, they, or the front was all different, all the French perfumes, um, all the different luxury fragrances. We had nail tables at the front and at the back was the beauty side of it. And I just did some really great sales as um, a, a beauty therapist in the back of this perfumery that I caught the eye of one of the French um, corporate companies so long story short I started traveling around um, uh, uh, New South Wales first and then around Australia when I got on a plane and started to be able to do my job on a plane like as in going from state to state and meeting salons and salon owners that was it the um, the hands-on side of of my passion always stayed I always had a salon at home always came back to that but when I got to the business side behind the beauty industry for me that was that was the game changer and so I worked um at all I think every capacity in like a corporate side of a business and so for instance like a warehouse a warehouse when I started my business a warehouse wasn't totally new to me because I had been in other people's businesses and I'd walked through uh, a warehouse and I picked and packed boxes and I had an idea of, um, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, products were sent out. And But I always worked in the sales and the um, the education and somehow always had some sort of um, connection in the marketing side. Like I was always a contributor in the marketing side, but I've got no um, marketing degree or business degree or anything like that, you know. For me, it was always something that the more I learned, the more I needed to learn. The more that I needed to learn, the more that you researched. And I don't know, before I knew it, I basically had touched every aspect of the professional beauty industry. 35 years ago, what was available? What what did you learn at beauty therapy school? And, you know, what were you doing day to day? Because things have changed a lot, I'm assuming. So 35 years ago, it was much more um, diverse. The learning wasn't as specialised as it is today. So as you know, today we've got the the dermal therapy and you don't even need to be a beauty therapist anymore to do dermal therapy. So we learnt skin and and nutrition and massage and manis and pities and body massage. Like you were the whole, the all-rounder. Back in the day, you know, um, so the microdermabrasion, the peels, everything was all taught within that one year full time um, uh, training. And it wasn't until some years later that it began to be much more specialized. And so, you know, like if you look at beauty now in comparison, you can just do a lash technician 
You yeah. can be a brow specialist, you know, hair, and manicures and pedicures have found their own market and massages found its own market and, um, you know, the, de- de- the device market is another one altogether. So it, it was probably better in, in those days because you had like a really good overall understanding of all of the different categories, whereas now sometimes it can be a little bit maybe too sort of tunnel vision and too much um you know you just do lasers for instance and you don't necessarily depending on where you you know where you work you don't necessarily need to be a beauty therapist to do that you can be a technician without being a therapist so and and I was really quite disappointed to find out that the dermal studies you don't need to have a therapist background you don't actually have to have a hands-on background to become a dermal therapist so I think it's sort of gotten lost a little bit it was I, I feel like it was much better in the day I mean Sometimes I hear when they do the assessments and they're virtual, you know, it's on, not just because of COVID but even prior, so the, um, the long-distance learning, where you just have to do one eyebrow. Like, hello? You just <laughs> learned, to, like, you assessed on one eyebrow. What about the other guy? Like, you know, they're twins. They don't, they don't go out on their own, you know what I mean? So it's very different. You touched on... Um something when you were talking about your education and one of the things you said was that you were so obsessed with what you were doing. It didn't feel like you were learning. It was like you had this unquenchable thirst for just more and more and more. And it's interesting, you know, people sometimes in their life, especially early on, they're trying to find which direction they're going to go in. Um, you know, even sometimes like someone like Jake, you started off, you know, doing something and then you ended up doing something else. And it's sort of like, when you find something that you're like really passionate about that you love doing, it never really feels like work. And I think that's where a lot of people go through life doing something that they think they should do or what other people expect them to do, or they don't have the courage for whatever reason to go and do it, or they think they can't make enough money out of that profession. But I've seen it so many times. And I guess you're, you know, a great example of this is if no matter what it is that you do, if you love it and become obsessed by it, you can be successful and it never feels oh like you're God. working. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Oh, David, absolutely. I remember one of my, I went to a, I think it was an Elabashe um, event. And when I went to sit down on the seat, there was an A4 piece of paper. So I picked it up and when I turned it around, it said, I'm talking about like 34 years ago, maybe it said, do what you love and the money will follow. That has stuck with me. Like I, I can't even begin to tell you how real that is the way that I live my life. And I, I can't understand anybody that gets up and goes to work day in, day out and does something that they don't absolutely love. You can you can pretend and you can fake things for a little while, but how can you do them long term, you know? So for me, you know, even sometimes, you know, when people say, so what's the exit strategy here? Like, I know that I should have that, right? I should know that very, very clearly what that is. And I find it a very difficult discussion to have because I love it today as much as I loved it when I chose it 35 years ago. And so how do you talk about leaving something when you love it? How do you leave someone when you love them? So it's so true. It's like, the thing about the professional beauty industry, and I always say the professional beauty industry because it's very different to working on a department store counter 
or um, you know just working in, in manis and pities or that sort of thing. It's that there are so it's like an onion. There are so many layers to this industry that I started as an esthetician. I haven't done a hands-on treatment for a long, long time, but I create treatments for others to do now. It's just like I don't know. It's just so exciting. There's just never a day that there isn't an opportunity that presents itself. And so I, I truly believe that if you, there's something about your job you don't love, find the track, find the angle that you do love. You know, and and maybe that's why the beauty industry has specialised itself. Like I don't like doing facials. I don't like, um, you know popping pimples so I'm just going to focus on just doing massage I'm just going to focus on lashes I'm just going to focus on eyebrows but find what it is and then you know it's someone that just does eyebrows how many girls how many guys have now got ranges of eyebrow products just eyebrow products and nothing else it's incredible yeah well you Jake you had the same thing you know you you were starting to be uh, a surgeon was it general you're doing colorectal surgery and you then, know, uh, yeah, well, you, tell it, yeah you tell it it's, it's just it's interesting it's, yeah. yeah absolutely oh look you know i won't bore everyone you can listen to episode one if you want the full story <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah like you know all doctors start very very general and just like you said maria you, you become specialized and then more specialized and then you just become an eye surgeon or whatever you choose to do so yeah so um i did it for you know over a decade both in the uk and here and yeah, there were there were many. Well, I loved operating. I loved doing, you know, you know, big procedures and fixing people. But there are many, many other aspects of hospital that I hated. Obviously, the shift work, the nights, the long days, the weekends, the fact that you're constantly told what you're doing. You, you have zero control over, you know, your life. So I missed weddings and funerals and birthdays and yeah. And after ten years of that, you think. Hmm, what else what else is out there and luckily you know when injectables sort of kicked off in the UK in any sort of meaningful way I thought well hmm seems interesting maybe I'll have a play and 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 look where we are now yeah so follow your passion follow, yeah. follow uh, your heart it's, follow it's your just, heart and I think sometimes people think that that's just an easy way out but it, it's you know I say that even to my partners today like you know Find, find your happiness, find what makes you happy and the rest comes together because if you're happy, you can't be doing things badly. Yeah, it was easy to say. I mean, it was a massive call for me to oh. say to my mum and dad, oh, by the way, you know, you put me through medical school and I did an extra <laughs> three years doing anatomy and I've been a surgeon for 10 years. Well, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My dad didn't speak to me for three months. He was probably three years. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. yeah. But, um, no, I, I fully echo what you're saying. Can you yeah. just elaborate on what your businesses are and, and just tell us the story of, of sort of where they came from? Today, what I do today? Yeah. Yeah. So um, somewhere along the line, about 14 years ago, I had worked for a number of different um, corporate companies that uh, were distributors that had other people's brands. And I actually was quite instrumental in some of my um, last roles, bringing brands into Australia. And somehow I was a little bit unlucky, particularly in my last job. I worked for um, what I call a, a cowboy. Like one of the things that's happened to the beauty industry, like it's a, it's a woman's world. The professional beauty industry is a woman's world. And somewhere along the line, some big dollars started coming out of this industry, as you'd both be aware, like, you know, $150,000 laser machines and, you know, um, IPL machines. And all of a sudden the boys started going, oh, this is a big money, like, you know can't leave the girls to do this. Like, we need some boys in here. And so 
where I find that sometimes it's gone wrong, and I certainly see it in some of the franchise companies and I see in the equity buy-ins that it becomes about it becomes about the dollar. It's no longer about the business. It's no longer about the core, the heart of the um, of the business. So the last guy that I worked for did some really bad stuff. Some really bad stuff. Unbeknownst to me, I was working um, for him and didn't know. I, I was sort of the facade. Didn't was not aware that I was the facade for this for this business. But when um, the shit hit the, the fan, and I realised that there was some really dodgy stuff happening, like really dodgy stuff happening. I was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. Like I left my last, last job and unfortunately I'd been made redundant out of nowhere, couldn't understand why. Like I, I was loving the job. I was a national sales manager, travelling all over Australia, just being, um, given a, just being given a bonus and everyone just thought I was just great at what I did. I thought I was great at what I did and out of nowhere I got made redundant and didn't understand why until you know, I can tell you that. Bit later on, so I started working for myself under just like out of nowhere with the MM management consultancy. That's where I met Bobak and um, had an opportunity to work with all different um, companies. But somewhere along the line, I sort of thought, you know what, I, I, I need to do this for myself if I'm going to be able because I'm all about the heart, like everything I do. The, I don't know if it's written in a textbook. I don't think that they teach it at uni. But the way that I run my businesses is all through the heart, the heart before the head, you know. And people go, oh, you know, a lot of guys go, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't work like that. You've got to be looking at the dollars and you've got to be looking at the finances and all that. No, no, no. I employ people to look after that side of stuff. But the, what I do is is like from the heart and I can control so much more from the heart than from, from the dollar sense, right, the people that – you, that your your vibe attracts and and the people that you bring into your business are all like you you know and so um, I thought okay I'm going to do it for myself I'm going to open my own distribution company so I went to the states and I found a brand that I that I thought was amazing that I absolutely loved and um, I bought it into Australia a brand out of California and I was standing in my garage like many businesses start I you know, took the cars out, put the products in, and I was I was everything. Like I was the the um, data entry and um, warehouse and pick and pack and um, sales and education. You named it. The only thing that changed uh, was the shoes that I wore. So if I was in a hill, it was like the business side of the of what I was doing, and if I was in like my flats, it was like running the warehouse and running up the stairs, printing off invoices and that sort of thing. And so I did that for about six months. And then one of the brands that I bought into Australia on behalf of somebody else um, had uh, an opportunity for looking for a new distributor. So I picked that one up and that's when I went into Five Doc because no longer the garage could no longer hold what we were doing. So the first couple of years of InSkin Cosmetics, which is the distribution uh, umbrella, I, um, I sold other people's brands. And both those brands I owned by men. This is going to, it's going to sound like I hate <laughs> men, but I promise you it's got nothing to do with that. And um, they, one came from the gene trade and the other one came from a, a, a different, another background that was nothing to do with skin at all. So the Californian brand would have some problems and, um, you know, when it, like for example, a product stained the skin yellow. And so I'd ring him up and go, oh God, we've got a real problem here. Like, you know, this new product is leaving the skins yellow and his answer would always be 
Hey, Marie, I don't know what you guys do down there in Australia, but it only ever happens in Australia. I was like, no, 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 no. Because the skin in the States is like the skin here in Australia. So if it's tinting, if it's staining skins yellow, it's staining skins over there as well. And I would say to my husband, to Marika, you know what, one day I'm going to lose it. One day I'm going to tell him like where to go. But <laughs> I can't do that because I've got this brand now in X amount of clinics. I've got staff, I've got clinics, which I call them my partners. Um, you know, I can't just have a like a hissy fit and go like, stuff you, I don't want you anymore. I need to do something here that I'm in full control of not just my, you know, my direction, but everybody that works for me and my partners as well. So I decided I was going to create my own brand. And so that was 11 years ago that I launched um, O Cosmetics. And um, that was my opportunity to bring something to Australia that was what was different and it was in line with what people wanted right then. Um, and in fairness, even um, 11 years ago, another brand was needed in this industry like a hole in the head. You can imagine, right? There's brands <laughs> everywhere. So for me, I'd already been working in the industry a good probably 20 years and it's fair to say that I knew the industry really, really well. I knew the industry intimately. I knew the partners intimately and I knew everything they loved about the brands that I sold and everything that they hated about the brands that what brands couldn't give them over and above being just a good brand. And that's when I put my criteria together for um, O Cosmetics to the extent that I actually even um, created the cosmetics. I'd, I'd, I'd launched InSkin Cosmetics with a D the three years prior and then when I came to my own brand, it was cosmetics with a D as well. So because if you're going to make up a name, right, you're going to have to have a story to, to, to go with it. And that's when I came up with that. One of the things that I find in skincare is that this, we can make so many claims. We can say so much about um, a product and, and what it does. And the claims that we make are really not substantiated on um, percentages of active ingredients. So I thought, if I'm going to put out a brand to the professional beauty industry where I've chosen an audience that is the most critical, the most sceptical, the most expert in skin, then I'm going to have to give them something that's different to everybody else. And that's when I made the decision that the cosmetics with the D would stand for using your functional actives. And so the, the active ingredient in the percentage that it's required in order to make a skin difference. And that's where the um, the cosmetics with a D came from. You sort of joked about um, you probably need another skincare product, like a hole in the head. It, it kind of is true. I mean, I don't know what it was like back then when, when you launched, but there's just so much stuff out there that I, you know, I get confused. I'm sure David gets confused and our patients certainly get confused. So how did you go about deciding what was needed? Was it just a simple market research as what was what was available, or did you work with skin scientists, or like you know, just tell about the process? I guess all of the above. The fact that um, I had been working already with the, the clinics, I understood what was important. To them. Look, th there are great brands out there, um, and from the the formulation perspective, the fact that it was an active product that actually had the, the active ingredient in its functional dose, that was very, very important. So when we we launched, even though I went out and said to our partners, be aware, this is a this is a functional active 
dose that we're using. Like it's high active. And people, yeah, no, we already use 1%. Retinol, we already use 10% niacinamide. It's like, okay, I'm not sure that we do. I think that we think that we do, but I'm not sure that we do. So we had loads of what initially were seen as reactions, much mm. to the um, the uh, the pleasure of our competitors, that we were getting all these reactions and skins were getting red and inflamed and they were getting dry and flaky. But we was, we had to unlearn, like, the industry. We had to teach them that, you know, when you're using such active ingredients, you have to drip feed them into the skin so that the skin doesn't purge. And so um, that was one of the big things that the, the therapists and the skin, um, the dermal therapists certainly picked up very quickly, that they had something that really worked. So one thing is that people knew me and were prepared to give me a go with my brand. But the other thing is that the brand needs to work and that people need to come back and buy the product. I worked with um, a couple of um, chemists that were able to guide me in the, the formulation aspect because I'm certainly not a cosmetic chemist, but I definitely knew what the product needed to do and I knew what it needed to feel like and the playtime when you're putting the product on the skin. I knew where I wanted it to have a fragrance and it had a sensorial experience that was attached to it and I knew where I didn't want that but one of the really big things um, was Australian made I I have to be very honest that I didn't realize that it was so important to clinics to have and to consumers to have a product that was made in Australia and one of the first ads that we put out there um, had like you know ticks or oh ticks all the boxes one of those like you know typical type um ads and I had the Australian made as one of the last points the next time we ran that ad it was the first point because it was it got into the stage where clinics were sort of like you know BDMs were always coming in their doors salespeople were always coming through their door and they'd sort of sing out and go like is it Australian made and they go you know well it is and they go oh well you can come in so that was it was really good timing for that which was awesome and the other thing that um was really important was professional only and get ready for this online protected internet protected mm-hmm. so being an esthetician myself it it takes a lot to do a skin diagnosis and to go through the the needs of the individual and the, the skin goals and then when you put a prescription together for the patient the expectation is that the patient is going to say thank you I'll take those products today. But what was happening then, and obviously still happens today, is where the product is readily available online. So the patient says something like, oh, thank you. I'm just going to have a think about this, (laughs) which means I'm just going to step outside the door and I'm just going to Google it and see if I can get it cheaper. And I was under absolutely no way was that going to be um, applicable to O Cosmetics. So, so how did you um, ring fence that? How did you do that? Because as you say, it's a massive problem. Then there's a problem of counterfeit products or products from abroad that are slightly different because, you know, the concentrations of actives in certain countries are yeah. allowed are different. So how did you do that? So we put together – so the, the whole big thing is, right, one thing is keeping it with the professional beauty industry and the other thing is that what you don't want to do is bastardise the brand. And um, uh, someone that's very well known to – 
uh, to all three of us, had just not long before that launched a brand where he had put it into the marketplace. And it was, I think if I'm not wrong at the time, it was a price point of $45. Uh. <laughs> Every product was $45. Right? This, this was a perfect learning for me and a really good um, springboard for my argument. So at $45, before we knew it, it was on Adore Beauty and it was 30% off. And I was like, what? It's $45. How much cheaper can it get? So what we did, we put together what is now called a supply agreement. And the supply agreement just requires the um, the, the client, the, the partner, to sign the agreement that says the product cannot be sold online. Right. So we, so they they buy the brand. They know that when they put it on the shelves, it's. I mean, it's so crazy to think that here we are in this digital world, and this brand has found its fame without being online. And so they signed the supply agreement. And what the supply agreement basically did was prevent the brand from going online and being discounted. Mm. And we've been able to hold our ground with that until March of 2020 when COVID came along and um, this business, InSkin Cosmetics, was reliant. 98% of sales relied on the salons and those doors closed. Overnight, Mm. those doors closed. So we didn't have an online presence. Salons didn't have an online presence and um, we, we fell to our knees. We fell to our knees. Right. So how, what, what, how did you, you know, I hate the word pivot, but how did you guys pivot? Did you suddenly just, you know, revert to online or did you just decide to time limit that and then go back to your old model? So, Jake, that's a really good question. It, um, it you know, it feels like that the decisions that we made to pivot, I mean, like pivot, like we were spinning, like nauseating while we were spinning. Um, and there was just so many things, so many opportunities. Like, you know, we had some of the big online um, companies that had been trying to get the brand for some time that would like, you know, the cape that came on. We're here to save you. You just have to come with us. We've got millions of people on our database. You're going to be okay. You don't need the salons anymore. And sort of like, obviously, desperate times, right? Desperate measures. And you're sort of like, okay, that, that yep, that would certainly get us out of this this mess. But here I am, Marie Cotoloni has for 10 years stood in front of her her partners, in front of the industry and said that she would never do the wrong thing by them, that no matter what, she would always protect them, that she would make the sacrifices for the professional beauty industry. So it's like, okay, that's not going to work. That's not We, we can't do that. Mm. And so we thought, okay, if we can get the brand visible online, but not open selling so that it, what would happen is that the consumer could find the brand easily enough and, and more so with their, their own customer. That's the whole thing is that you compete on your own, um, you know, you don't compete on the the, the, the service and you, well, you shouldn't, couldn't compete, sorry, you can't compete on the price. So you only ever compete on the service. Your customer doesn't leave you unless they're not getting the service because they're not going anywhere cheaper. So yeah. what we did, we... Um, we taught our partners um, how to build or where to go to build their website and they put a passcode protection on the sale. So what happens is when you go to an O Cosmetics um, salon, you uh, cannot buy 
freely online unless you're a customer. If you're a customer and they've given you the the passcode, then you've got your passcode and you go in and you, you make your um, your purchases. But if it's the first time to the site, you actually have to book in for a consultation yeah. so that you're not buying. Because the other thing is that the product is functional actives. So if you've got a consumer that diagnoses their own skin or thinks, oh, look, you know, my my therapist has never sold me a 1% retinol, I'll just upgrade from a 0.5 to a 1%, then they have a skin uh, reaction, as they call it, then you, you, your brand starts to get a bad name. So we were able to not just get the brand exposure, but also to hold on to the um, the, uh, the, the the philosophy of the skin consultation by the passcode protection. So um, the irony is that of, I think it was the 27th of March, we fell to our knees and come October, we had our biggest month in the history of, um, of in-skin cosmetics by having our partners all come on board with the, because they needed the same thing, right? And I think one of the things that happened in the last lockdown that hasn't happened in this lockdown is that the job keeper was paid by the employer to the staff members. So the staff members felt an obligation to work for that money. So the salons basically, you know, I was there that next morning when those salons closed, like here I was, like, you know, shaking internally, going, oh, my God, like everything I've ever worked for is just, you know, who knows what's going to happen here. But I was on the camera on our uh, private page, 4,000, you know, um, therapists going, last night your doors closed, your business did not. Your database still needs you. In fact, they need you more than ever because your hands are not going to touch them for God knows how long. So now we need to teach them how to look after their skins. And we came up with all these ISO packs and um, all these tutorials. And before we knew it, the salons were absolutely killing it. And so we then taught them how to take this bricks and mortar business to a virtual clinic. And they absolutely killed it. The the, the um, salons have particularly found their, um, their confidence in being on camera and on going on their social media and doing their tutorials. Um, the face-to-face consultation, the, the, the follow-ups, all virtual. So by the end of um, when the, the clinics reopened, when the doors reopened, we actually had two businesses. So from one business, two businesses were created. So there was the bricks, was bricks and mortar and the virtual. But the error that the clinics made is that when the doors reopened, as you would be very aware, they were absolutely slammed. Like they, they, they could not keep up with the, the hands-on treatment. So the virtual clinic basically shut down. Whereas had they retained the virtual clinic, they wouldn't have had to start up again um, yeah. quite so hard this time. So what do you think is going to happen? Sorry to change. Well, I'm just going to go off on a tangent a little bit, but we'll come back to some of your other products. What do you think is going to happen after this lockdown? Because as, as you said, it, it is different. It, it does feel different this time. Um, you know, we had the people that were sort of getting quite upset at the beginning and there's, you know, that march that happened in um, that protest that took place. And it, it seems like now people just feel a bit broken, to be honest with you. It, it, it feels... Yeah. It doesn't feel as hopeful as it did last time. And I don't want to 
put any ideas in people's minds and, and sort of <laughs> make it contagious, but it, it, uh, it doesn't feel as, en- as energetic and we're sort of ready to get back out there. It just feels like people are thinking, okay, well, we've been locked down for a really long time now. There hasn't been a stop put on mortgages and, you know, landlords are still demanding rent and there's been some pretty horrific stories about people's businesses just basically going under because they can't pay their rent and nothing they can do about it. So you yeah. sort of hear these stories and I guess, you know, the longer things stay like this or have stayed like this, you know, every action has a reaction. And, you know, when you stop the flow of money and trying to restart it again, what, what what's that going to look like, right? You know, and all and a lot of these things become self-fulfilling prophecies because the whole, you know, economy is is basically built on confidence. And so, you know, once you start getting that, you know, that that sort of mentality where people start panicking, you know, people start panicking, they start buying, you know, ripping toilet paper, fighting each other for toilet paper in, in supermarkets. People do crazy things when panic sets in. So, sorry, long, long question, but I guess just to sort of give it a bit of context and background, what, what do you think is going to happen this, this time? I think the, the beauty industry will always bounce back. There's, yeah. there's no other way. Like, you know, um, the, 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 the doors reopen the the salons that they won't cope we'll have christmas trade that will if we open on the 18th of october or the 11th of october christmas trade will hit like instantly so i don't think there's ever the worry about the reopening um but there's definitely a a a tragic disconnect Mm -hmm. um and a division of the people and i think that's going to be the hardest thing yeah i mentioned before with the um the job keeper last year given that the employers paid the job keeper so the employees certainly felt obliged to work for that money. Yeah. But the way that the COVID-19 disaster payment has been has played out, it's gone straight from the government to the employees and they've pretty much left their employers high and dry. Yeah. And I'm not so sure that they've meant to do that. I'm not so sure that they didn't actually ask the question of the employees, like, would you be able to come and help me? Would you be able to do a couple of hours? So if you've got a clinic and, um, you know, you're a mum and you're homeschooling and you you need to look after your database, they just haven't been able to do that. We've seen a huge, huge, huge um, disconnection and, and certainly not the, um, the, the su- success that the salons had this time mm. um, last year. But I think this whole thing now with, you know, the fully vaccinated being the restrictions being lifted on the fully vaccinated and having to turn away the unvaccinated. Um, if you look at the forums, just the beauty forums, it's just, it's, it's vile. It's just ugly. And the people are really divided in, in their, their thoughts. And um, there's a lot of, um, I, I don't know. I just think, I think that it's just a, a really awful time to be alive at the moment. It, people just are not agreeing. I saw on a forum the other day, someone said, like, tell me why, you know, a vaccinated person's better off than an unvaccinated person. And someone wrote and said, look, you know, it's not that they're not, they're better off. Like at the end of the day, everybody can catch COVID. We know that, right? But if you're vaccinated, there's more chance that you'll stay out of the hospitals, keep the hospital beds free. You're not going to die. You know, um, you'll, you'll recover faster. And the answer was, so I guess you're celebrating captivity. It's like, what? <laughs> That's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Where did that come from? Like, you know, so the, the division in people and, and the thoughts and the, you know, um, and this discrimination, I guess, people that are seeing at the moment, that's going to be a worry. The clinics are going to suffer because this is a very intimate um, industry 
And we've been treating some of our customers, some of our patients for like 10, 15 years. And if one of those patients now comes in and says, hey, you know, I want to have a treatment, I'm not vaccinated, but like you've been treating me for 15 years, you know me. And then they now have to make a decision and say like, hey, um, I'm not going to be able to treat you. There's a, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of concern around yeah. that. So it's funny how the... The financials, absolutely, there's a huge concern with, you know, your rent in arrears and some people maybe didn't even get back on their feet from the last time. But we do know in this industry that the minute the doors open, we'll be absolutely slammed and, and you know, do what you love and the money will follow, right? Yeah. But what about the resentment between the employer and the employee? Like, you know, I was here on my own. I had to look after my our database on my own while you were at home taking money from the government and not doing anything. And there's some of the things that I'm seeing that I'm not sure how they're going to work out long term. Mm. No, I'm going to ask David a question. So looks like the onus will be on the clinic or the shop or the restaurant yeah. to kind of police, you know, that fact that checking if people are vaccinated or not. There's going to be so much conflict. Yeah, there's going to be chairs yeah. thrown through your window. and Yeah, I mean, you know, human beings are really good at arguing about shit, right? We've been doing it, like, forever. Religion, land, whatever whatever you want to think about. Yeah. Human beings have found a reason to, to fight about things. So, you know, again, you know, we're, we're probably going to see some, some division here. And it's sad, you know, because it's something that's impacted everyone in some way. And everyone wants to go back to some sort of normality. It's just, there's been so much um, confusion and information that hasn't been clear and, you know, conspiracy theories. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's really hard, you know, because I think everyone really, re- really wants the best and what they, and what they believe they believe is the best. It's not because they're doing it for reasons, you know, they're, they're not, they're not doing it. There's no malicious intent with it. It's just a difference of opinion. I agree. People come yeah. from a good place. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think it is going to be hard. I think that, um, you know, people get, people, you know, what's it like 21 days to form a habit, you know, so people have now gotten used to not working, you know, and even last time it was difficult, you know, coming back from the lockdowns, even from, you know, for myself a little bit, you're like, God, you know, you sort of, it takes a while to get back into the groove and, and get your momentum and so on. So, and I think that we even were struggling even before the lockdown in my businesses, there's just less people applying for jobs, people just caring less about their jobs. I think, you know, and, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe we, maybe we all work too hard. Maybe we don't take time to, you know, to relax and do things outside of work. And maybe, maybe it was, I don't know, to give a bit of perspective maybe, but, but it has been really difficult. And I think that um, the workforce mentality may change as a result. Yeah. And and how were your businesses affected, if you don't mind me asking, in, in this lockdown? I mean, you said you're going to bounce back, but what challenges, uh, you know, did you have? Were you able to get supplies? Could you, could your staff go to your warehouses? You know, what, what was happening on the ground? It was just every turn has a block. Every yeah. aspect of the business has had a, um, a barricade put up. So, um, uh, to answer your question about the office, the, uh, look, the office for me is like a, a kilometre away, but it's in another LGA and um, I can't get to the office. Um, I have about 40 people that work in the office. I currently have six people that work in the office. Mm. And unfortunately, um, the warehouse, the, dis- the distribution side of the, the business requires your hands-on people. So we're down to four people in the warehouse right now and praying to God that, you know, um, thank God everybody is double vaccinated and um, or fully vaccinated, I should say, 
and um, you know they're just working crazy hours to to keep up the the benchmark customer service so that you know we can get the the packages out every day. Having said that, once they get into the hands of like Star Trek or um, you know um, Australia Post, that God knows how long they're going to take to get yeah. to people. <laughs> it's everything's a nightmare, you know. The um, because we manufacture our own product ranges. There's massive delays on um, raw materials. There's delays on um, packaging. There's delays on printing. Everything like the the overseas, you know, um, by air you can't afford to bring anything in by air anymore. It's just like four times the amount of what you're paying before by ship. Everything's on on delay. So it's a really bad time because this is Christmas for us. This is our Christmas preparation. So we would normally have we do like a a Christmas uh, pack every year, which is hugely anticipated. Um, and so we go on sale the 1st of October. So mm. about I think about 60% of our sales of those Christmas packs go out on the 1st of October. Well, this year, they're not even going to be packed in their bags. We're going to have to send them out in separate components because we cannot get a, the Christmas um, casuals to come in because of the whole um, restrictions and the lockdown. So I've sort of you know, mucked around with my my partners a little bit and said, hey, so what if we sent you all the components so you get the products and the bag and the wrap and a really cool video that showed you how to put it together? <laughs> how would you feel about that? And they're like, bring it on, no problem. If, we, if the choice is to have the Christmas pack or not have it, then we'll make the bags ourselves. So I don't think there's an aspect of the business right now that hasn't been... Um, highly um compromised but um just make sure that you just work harder every day right yeah yes it's going to be tough it's sort of like you have you've got all this um pent-up demand so it's almost like you're seeing well basically we've had like almost a quarter of the year wiped out really in in new south wales at least yeah you've been being asked to cram well and it's like you know it's like someone's giving you all your favorite foods to eat but you have to eat them all in one meal do you know what i mean like it's it's like Because you 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 are God, I want all these customers, but it's like I don't have enough I don't have enough resources to service them all. It's yeah. really it's kind of it's, it's a bit. bit no, we have our own manufacturing. We, we, one of the other things that we did a few um, years after we started uh, creating our uh, brand, we also um, uh, bought or, or create started our own manufacturing plant. So we went in with the chemist, and um, and we own our own manufacturing plant. So that's good because you don't have to be in anyone else's schedule and, you know, um, you should be at the front of the line. But what do you do when how many different things happen, raw materials don't arrive? You know, you've got um, a product that's out of stock and you've got all the raw materials but one and you can't make a product for three months. Or, you know, you've got all the raw materials but the packaging hasn't arrived. Or you've got all the raw materials in the packaging and the carton hasn't arrived. It's just to to bring all the components together right now. Mm-hmm. You can't see my grays, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's it really is. I think you just. I'm really one of my core values with my uh, my partners is transparency, so they know exactly what's going on. So we never had these moments where they have absolute, you know tangents go like what's going on what are you guys doing what aren't you guys doing why haven't we got the stock they know exactly what's going on and when there's a debacle with a product or whatever might be happening a process they know so that they 
it's sort of the other way. This like, I feel so sorry for you. I'm so sorry. I hope this is going to work out for you. And you don't do it to get their sympathy, but you get it so that they understand that when you manufacture, it's a totally different ball game. A totally different ball game. So it, there's yeah, there's challenges everywhere you turn. And, you know, we've got um, our, we do a um, a promotional magazine three or four times a year called Insights, and the Christmas Insights is normally full of color and fun and reward and amazing you know packs and and it just looks always amazing well my poor creative team I've got eight people in my marketing department they can only photograph what's inside their house or in their backyard Mm -hmm. because they can't leave so they're, they're so challenged like you know now we've got boyfriends and husbands and dogs that appear in holding products or around products or you know they've they've really had to use their you know get their creative juices flowing because what do you do you know yeah it's yeah it (laughs) anyway look the way that I see it is if we can get through this sort of stuff we're never going to look back we really are I'll ask you maybe a controversial question but I'm just curious to see what your thoughts are And, and I don't know if you supply your products to sort of higher end medical clinics or if it's more beauty but what do you make of the clinics who have sort of been opening up during the lockdown and uh you know sort of under the guise of we're medical we're allowed to be open it's wrong it's just wrong it's just and it's it it creates again it goes back to what i said before the division you know it's it's if injectables falls under aesthetics then Everybody should be at home and everybody should be, you know, under the same rules and regulations. And I know that there are a couple of people out there doing it and there's a couple of great people out there that are exposing them, which I absolutely love. Mm. Um, it's, it, it, it should be the same playing field for everybody. It's, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, three months without Botox, we're all going to be okay. But that's when I say when the doors reopen, bang, this yeah. industry just booms. There's, there's, there's no question about it, whether it's lasers, whether it's massage, whether it's nails. Like, you know, I've had, I've had acrylic nails. I'm not going to show you too close for the last 30 <laughs> years, you know, and I've done everything in my power to hold on to them. And guess what? They, the, the time is going to win, like, you know. But the minute that that clinic opens, I haven't sort of gone, like, after 30 years, I'm done, I'm not going to. Not going to have my nails done anymore. Are you kidding me? <laughs> get me in as fast as you can get me. And it's the same with hair, and it's the same with the injectables. It's the same with every aspect. It's it should be a, a, an even playing field for everybody. And it's like the protesters. You know, maybe I shouldn't go down that angle, but at the end of the day, the super spreader happened after the protesting. So if everybody just does that one thing wrong, I'm just going to see that patient, or I'm just going to you know go to this protest, or I'm just going to visit this person look where we are yeah yeah that yeah that's my sentiment entirely so thanks for saying it and i didn't have to say it yeah well you know <laughs> uh, look yeah. yeah i know everybody's really scared to sort of you know to, to call people out but i one of the things that i find that's really hard about the the health orders is, is like you know when you see on the forums that um consumers are having a go at their clinics like one of my four clinics she took a lot of time to write what she felt was quite a neutral statement on her Facebook just to make her patients aware that she was going to follow the health orders because that's what we do, right? In Australia, you know, I come from an Italian background and one of the things that always stays in my mind is when they introduced seatbelts in Italy. Mm -hmm. Some of the country towns actually Mm -hmm. had T-shirts printed 
with the seatbelts so that the, when the, the police went by, they looked like they were wearing their seatbelt, right? That's that's what happens over there, right? But it doesn't happen here. We are law-abiding citizens and we always have been, right? And now all of a sudden, by being pushed to do the wrong thing, and this, as I said before, this industry is a very heartfelt, a very intimate industry. And if you twist my arm, you're going to make me feel really, really bad and I'm going to feel like that. I need to to, to do your treatment, Right. But if I get caught, it's a fifty-five thousand dollar on the on on the spot fine. Who's got that money? Yeah, you know. And and I I've got some of my partners that say I don't care what they say. Like you know, I'm just going to open up. And this five people rule. That's ridiculous. I'm just going to like anyone can come in, vaccinated, unvaccinated. How long is someone going to pull that one off until they get that fifty-five thousand dollar fine? Sorry. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I don't have fifty five thousand dollars sitting to pay for a fine. That's crazy, and you, you know, you just don't want to be that clinic that gets known as the super spreading clinic. And not Imagine. only that, you know, there's the whole health implications and just reputational implications. Yeah. So, yeah, and imagine it. that you do have a case, and then you've got to close for another fourteen days. You know, all oh. your staff off again, and consumers know that you've had a case. So, what are you doing wrong? Why? Why has that happened? Mm. It's just not worth it. So I just find that, you know, just following the rules, that's following the health orders, and people just need to understand. It's like we don't make those rules, but we do. We we all have a responsibility to follow them. Absolutely. A lot of our listeners are injectors, and I guess you know we're all, we're all part of of the bigger industry, right? Which is you know the look good industry, right? We're all, we're all part of it, and um, it's becoming a very competitive space. And um, I'm just becoming. <laughs> well, even every day more so, right? And um, everyone's looking for an edge. And I think that, you know, I've mentioned in, in many of the podcasts before, there's a whole lot of people having a go at being entrepreneurs, which is great. Um, you know, a lot of nurses going out on their own and and um, seeing what they can do. And I guess everyone's got it. Most people have a dream of having their own business at some stage in their life, right? So what it's so I, easy, right? Yeah, well, it looks easy. Right? It took me 14 years to be an overnight success. <laughs> um, so, I mean... What would what advice would you give to those people looking to start up those businesses in terms of, you know, what are the most important things, um, what to be prepared for, what are some of the the things that um, you might not see coming that maybe you can tell them they should expect, um, and just to how to I guess stand out from the crowd. Well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, if you if you're going to start a business, you have to have a point of point of difference. And you have to be really clear about what that point of difference. For, for me, it's like I actually started a category in skincare and um, and trademarked it, you know, the cosmetics with a, with a D. And when you somebody asks you, what does that even mean? Like, you know, I actually have people that said to me, oh, do you realise you've got a spelling mistake on your on your business card or on your um, advertising? So you've got a so it's it's cosmetics, it's functional actives. So when you buy a product that's made by InSkin Cosmetics, it's got functional actives in it. And you can't move from that. One of the hardest things I find being in, in a business is being true to what you stand for. So whether it's your concept, whether it's your offer, um, whether it's your mission set, whatever it is, like, you know, people always come in and they know better. You'll always meet someone that says, oh, have you thought about doing this? And look, it'd be really cool if you were to do this. And all of a sudden, if if you're not strong in the belief on what you stand for and what your offer is and what your point of difference is, 
It's very easy to become somebody else's dream. And then that's when you start to become like everybody else. So for me, I think that you really need to, what is it that's going to make you different to the the next injector? What's going to make you different to the, you know, the laser clinic down the road? And it, sometimes it, it doesn't it doesn't have to be an expensive point of difference. It can simply be the heart that you put in your business. Like I like to think that I'm known in my in in, in the professional beauty industry because I have some really great products, and that I was able to build brands from scratch and and that they work and that they make a difference. But I also would. I love it when people say to me, Marie, we are connected with your business because of the heart of your business. We're an Australian-made product and we push that really, really hard. But I teach people that the heart is the Italian hospitality. It's We welcome you to the Italian familia. You know, and when, mm-hmm. when you say that, when you start, you know, you can't have someone come in and say, oh, God, Marie, like, people don't understand that shit. Like, what's what's the Italian familiar? You don't teach me my terminology. You don't tell me how I run my business. It, it, this is how we do it. Like, one of the things I had to learn, like, we're a kissy family, right? We're a, a business because we are Italian. And so when we meet you, we don't just shake your hand. I don't know how this is going to work out after COVID, but prior to COVID, <laughs> it was all, you know, and I... It wasn't until I, I had one of my um, BDMs that was working with me. I could see that she was really quite, like, almost repulsed by that all that touchy-feely stuff. And and if you come into the in-skin business, like, if I say to you, hey, David, how are you going? You go, yeah, no, I'm okay. And I know that, yeah, I'm okay means that, yeah, I'm okay on the facade because that's not really how I'm feeling. I'm going to say to you, no, you're not. You're not okay. I could tell you're not okay. Do, do you want to talk it through? Is there something that you want to talk about? That's not for everybody. You know, some people just want to go to work, they want to do their work, and they just want to go go home. Whereas when you're involved in our businesses, and even as a partner, we really and truly care. So you can't have someone say to you, look, around, I think you should stop that. You know, um, it's just too intimate or it's too much. It's like when you build a business, you need to put down your, your core values and you need to put them down on paper and you need to, to believe in them and you need to teach. I teach the core values in our business to every new person that comes in because the thing is that if you meet one of my people and they don't reflect what I think we stand for, then that doesn't work. So I think that starting a new business is hard, but there has to be a point of difference. And sometimes the point of difference is just purely the injector, the person that they are and the way that they present themselves. Of course, they've got to be great at their, their, their work. Of course, they have to be an artist and they need to to do, they need to be able to tell, like I, I feel like, you know, as an injector, you need to be able to say to me, like, Marie, I'm looking here, this is what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? And, you know, we come together on on, on that plan and what this is going to look like in the end. But at the end of the day, I'm only going to take that suggestion if I think that you're amazing, that I trust you and that I would allow you to work on my face or work on my skin or take me on my skin journey. And I think that sometimes I always go back to it's the heart that gets missed. You can sit down and, you know, I had an opportunity um, over the last 18 months to meet a whole lot of different private equity partners. And, um, you know, because we obviously have dreams that we'd like to take the business to the next level. But I really, really, really struggle when the conversation is just about the dollar, when it's just about the money. Like, I said it earlier when we started, do what you love and the money will follow. Like I don't know what all this focus is about the money because if you do everything right, 
the money follows. But if you just focus on the dollar and you don't care about the people and you don't make a connection, that's what brings people to your business is the connection. It's the heart-to-heart connection. So sometimes I think that when people start businesses, they get so caught up in this plan. Like, you know, who has a, a business plan anymore? Who can plan their business? Like what I remember starting out was like a seven-year plan and then it was a five-year plan and then it was a three-year plan. You can't even plan three months here at the moment. Um, you touched on it earlier and I think you're absolutely right. We're in a very intimate business, you know, whether we like it or not, we're treating people and people need to like us and we're going to be near them and breathing on them when we do our treatments. And, you know, the lockdown, well, several lockdowns have shown that people are desperate for that experience again. So you're right. It's a, it's the X factor and it's the personality and it's the the extra value that you can give, you know, your patients when you're seeing them. I wanted to ask, um, we've got about 80%, maybe even 80% plus of female um, listeners listening to the podcast. It's funny that you were sort of panning the men earlier because all the women are cheering probably. I don't mean that in a bad way. (laughs) It's just um, we do do business different, that's all. (laughs) No, no, I know, definitely. Um, Did you face any particular challenges, particularly, you know, 20, 30 years ago when you were thinking about starting your businesses? And do those challenges still exist now? I I, I think that, the beauty industry is a woman's world, so no. Um, I had the ch- challenges I had when I first started out. I was young, in managerial positions, and a lot of the people that answered to me were like 10, 15 years older than me, so that that was hard. Um, I really needed to work harder to prove myself and that I was um, capable. The, by the time I got into my own business, um, I was able to stand up for myself, and so yeah, as I said, I've had my fair share with the the cowboys, but they just made me even more determined to build a business from the heart, as opposed to um, any other way. Like you know, the, the, yeah, I always say, guys, that they they go for the dollars first, and I think I've really been burnt by that. Um, and I'm I'm a big believer that the dollars come if all if all the other stuff is is like all you know. I don't know how you say it, like, you know, all your ducks are lined up in a row. Mm. And when you put a product out there, it's not going to be a bestseller if you haven't thought about, you know, what the product does and how it's going to feel on the skin and the name of the product and the smell and the touch and how it fits in with everything else and the price point. There's so many components to get a bestseller on the market. But if you are listening and you are close to the people, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. So for me, I think as a woman, we have a way of, as a woman and as a therapist, like you, when you put your hands on somebody, and you'd know this, um, Jake, as a, as, a, as a doctor, the verbal diarrhea that comes out of people's mouths sometimes is just like, I don't know how many times when I was a hands-on therapist that you, you know, doing your treatment and everything and, um, you know, you're, you're sitting above people and, and working down on their skin and the stuff that's coming out, you're sort of like they can't see your face because their eyes are closed and you're going, oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe she just said that. Yeah. And then you finish the treatment, they get dressed and everything, and they come back into the room and they go, oh, my God, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I told you that. I've never told anybody that. Like, you know, you promised me you'll never say anything to anyone and you, and it's the, the, the licence to touch is so, so powerful. So as women, I find that we... We just hear a lot. We know a lot. And um, 
and you just have to respond accordingly to to the marketplace. And I find that um, in this industry, being a being a girl is actually on side. So I can't. I can honestly say that I've never been in a situation. I mean, maybe my earlier days in a board meeting or something like that of being bullied or something like that. There's one guy in the industry today who took me to town in a, in a, uh, a management meeting, not a board meeting, a management meeting. And, um, yeah, it was it was interesting and it was really hurtful and I know that he had targeted me because I was a woman. Um, and so it was a good experience. I learned that I needed to sort of sit, stand up for myself. And now he's a, uh, a business coach that desperately wants my business. He'll never remember what happened in that boardroom, but I'll never forget it. And so... Um, he's tried so hard to get my business and I'm just not sure now if I should just remind him about that boardroom because this is the thing, being a woman, you just don't forget. Well, if you want to name and shame him, no one's listening. You know, we no. don't get about 40,000 listens every month. <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny though? It's sort of like when he came back into, so we were at an expo one year and my husband said to me, Maria, that guy there, he really sounds like what he's talking about. And I said, which guy? And he was on the other side of the stand. And I went, oh, that guy. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just get his business card and maybe after the expo I can give him a call. And I never did that. But he's tried so, so hard. And it's just like I think being a girl, you just don't forget. And it's like it was really hard for me back then. I'm really grateful for the lesson. But I, because someone can do that to you in a in a management meeting, you know that, it's other things that they're capable of doing as well. So, no, um, I, yeah, I think it would be harder for a guy coming into this industry than a, a girl. Yeah. Um, what? How do you talk? Talk to me about how you um, value um, making mistakes. And sorry, I may rephrase the question differently. So, do you think that making mistakes are important? And, oh, then, the, the, and then how do you make the most of them, right? And then, well, how do you not make them again? Sometimes, any, yeah. Yeah. Anyone that knows me knows that I say that um, the, 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 the biggest mistakes of your life turn out to be the biggest blessings. But the, the greatest lessons become the biggest blessings. And if you don't make those mistakes, you just, you just don't, well, you just don't move forward. Um, and it, they're important to make because they're, they're life, right? It's all about living. And it's just, I'm, I'm all for mistakes and mistakes as a CEO, like there's mistakes that happen in my business and I accept that we're all human. Mistakes don't normally happen because they're, on, they're not on purpose, but when they happen, there has to be a learning from them and they, in most cases, can't happen again. Um, you know, I, I'm all for not just personally, but our business taking responsibility for mistakes and calling ourselves out on them. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they just happen. It's just, we're just human, right? So I, if one of my staff members make a, an error and they upset a partner, um, you know, a, a customer, I make them call, make that call and, and, and say, look, if I upset you this morning, I'm really sorry. If I've made that error and it's affected you, I'm really, really sorry. Most people say to me, I'm not making that call. I didn't do that. I didn't make that mistake. And so, no, but the bottom line is that the customer feels right now that, that you've upset them because you've said something wrong or you've done something wrong and the customer belongs to me. So you need to apologize to that customer. And every time that's happened, maybe five times in, you know, in 10 years, the customer will always say, look, I'm sorry, I was just having a really bad day today and I shouldn't have responded like that. So I think that mistakes have to happen, 
you have to be responsible for. This is a, one of my pet peeves, I have to say, one of my pet hates, is when a mistake happens and it's presented and you say, oh, like, hi, Maria, this is um, this has been printed wrong. It's like, okay, so how did that get printed wrong? Oh, I'm not really sure about that. I think maybe I might have used the wrong, um, sent the wrong file. And then you just wait and you just wait. And all you need after that is just like, I'm sorry, I think I might have sent the wrong file. So when you don't get the sorry for me, I'm, I'm a big one for teaching sorry and thank you in the business. I know it sounds like a real mummy thing, but I think that if your team can say I'm sorry and can recognise, can be grateful, that can give gratitude, then you've got very special people that work for you. So they're big lessons at, um, at InSkin. Well, it's amazing how many people <laughs> aren't taught that by their parents. So glad someone is <laughs> you know i um i don't i do charity different to a lot of people i you know we obviously pick our charities and october is always breast cancer for us my dad died of dementia we do things for dementia but i do charity every single day so if somebody if one of my bdm says to me hey marie i met this customer or one of our customers has gone through this um i send products or send money, whatever it is that, that, that we do, you know. And I, my kids that work in my business often say, Mum, you give away too much stuff. Like you're constantly giving stuff away. The amount of times that someone will pick up a phone and say thank you is very, very rare. You'll get lots of SMSs. You'll get um, private messages. The other, the other one that I really find and I hope that people hear it because it just drives me insane a lot of stuff that I do I do because I want to and I do it to surprise people and to delight people when they least expect it but the new way to say thank you is to put it on your insta story so all of a sudden that little moment that you and I were having together that it was something special just something from me to you that nobody needs to know about is now all over Instagram and that I find really difficult it's just like what about just a phone call and say thank you today you changed my day or even an SMS I wouldn't even mind an SMS if I have a choice between an SMS and a um a public um post it's just like maybe someone can look at it oh she's never done that for me she's not sent me that or oh she sent me something but I didn't get that so like, yeah. it's just between you and me you know so a lot of that sort of stuff um, I think is really the old-fashioned values for me is um, is really important. Yeah, I wanted to ask your your partners or the clinics that you're supplying. How many of them do you think have have suffered to the point where you know there, there's no return, or, or are they all positive and just waiting to open? Yeah, I don't know that I can answer that right now. I do know that we've had um, a handful of um, partners that have closed in the last month. Hmm. Um, I can't say that they've closed specifically because of COVID. I think that it's something that maybe they were thinking of, maybe it was time to retire or um, it, it all, they would maybe wanted to move another direction and this pushed them to yeah. do that. But it won't be until, you know, um, that 80%, we're not even 70%. I don't think we'll see a lot of them open at 70% because they won't have fully vaccinated um, staff. But come the 80%, percent will know what it looks like and I think there are going to be um, uh, victims this time around 
I don't think that um, everybody's going to come back. So uh, to give you a percentage, I couldn't do that. Um, one thing I do know about the industry, it is quite resilient and they always find a way. And I think that knowing that when you open your doors, you're not going to be waiting for customers to come in. They're going to be there already. Um, that does give you faith. But I guess it just depends what you've got in arrears, like, you know, your, your rent in arrears and your, all your, you know, your um, um what you owe so many people, I don't know. It's just, it'll be very interesting. And what staff come back as well, because sadly we're having a bit of an exit um, of um, therapists um, in the industry. But why is that? Like what, what's driving that? Well, we're the first industry to close. We're the last industry to reopen. Mm. And when we do reopen, we sometimes also reopen with restrictions. And so um, it's not unusual when we come back from um, lockdowns that, um, the patients have to wear masks and um, they can't treat, you can't do a facial treatment. So if you're a skin clinic, mm. it's no, not really a reopening um, when you can't treat the skin. Yeah, it's a good point actually with David and I were sort of discussing, you know, the injector sort of sector. Yeah. Luckily, a lot of nurses have been able to go back into hospital or vaccination clinics or, you know, stuff around COVID where they've been useful and, a small percentage of nurses that I've spoken to have thought or, or voiced, maybe they'll change their mind once we're out of COVID, but, you know, maybe it's a good thing to have that sort of hybrid job where you do do a day in hospital and four days injecting or, or whatever it may be and sort of have a bit more of a balanced um, skill set. Mm. Mm. Um, unfortunately for me, yeah. when COVID hit last time, I tried to go back to hospital and quickly realised, well, I wasn't really needed, but also my skill set was just not, I wasn't needed on the front. Well, I was needed on the front line, but my skill set didn't translate to that. So I'm mm. curious to know what your beauty therapists and your clinic owners, what what can they do? We've lost therapists to um, driving trucks, to working in the mines. Right. Um, I, I've got a couple of um, salon owners that I can think of that went and worked in um, in factories in the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, cleaning positions, medical positions, as in um, uh, secretarial positions, um, front desk. Um, they're not scared to work. That's the thing. I guess they're people's um, people's people, and so they 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 you know they're just not working hands on. That's all, you know. And um, I hope they come back because we can't afford to lose the therapists that we look like we're losing at the moment, um, unless they open up the borders and we get our international therapists back. There's going to be a, um, a huge um, shortage within the industry. I know some salons that are looking at treatments that they can do that don't require therapists anymore. Like it's we're going backwards, you mm -hmm. know, um, lots of LED lounges where clients can come in and cleanse their own skin and just go under um, an LED. Who wants that? You, you can do that sort of thing at home. So I'm hoping that nobody jumps ship at this point like this is not the time now to be jumping ship if you're going to jump ship you should have jumped in march of last year but we're at the end now and um we we need our um our experts and our skin um therapists badly yeah feels like we could talk to you forever maria but it's been almost an hour and a half oh god has it <laughs> it's gone real fast hasn't it been oh gosh really really enjoyed the discussion lots of good insights and you know just you know as you said you speak from the heart so you know it's it's hard not to sort of you know sort of being really captivated with what you're saying and i'm sure even though a lot of people who are listening don't work 
in the skin sector, as you saw, as we said, a lot of them are injectors and doctors. I'm just, a lot of the stuff, I'm we're sure, all in the will same still industry. resonate with them. We're all in the yeah. same industry. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I'm sure the message, the message will resonate. I hope so. 100%. So I was just going to sort of echo that and say that I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I love the fact that you're so passionate and you know, your your advice to those people out there when starting a new business. I, I, I just think your personality has to resonate. Otherwise, people are just going to see you as one of many skincare brands or whatever you're doing. So thank you for your time. And I'm sorry that we had to change our podcast date, but thank oh you. Oh my for God, absolutely not. Time. Thank you for the opportunity. I really loved it. Nice to catch up again with yeah, you, David. Yeah, absolutely. And um, let's hope that uh, on reopening, everything just sort of comes back and there is some normality. But yeah. The industry will always um, come back and I hope from an LCA point of view too David that Thank you. things work yeah. out for you because that's just um, it's it's devastating to see that yeah thank you wonderful to meet uh, nice well, to meet you too meet Jake you. and we'll, yeah. we'll have some dinner or something maybe at Christmas time that'd be lovely for our latest news upcoming guests and episode topics follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.